We're looking today at, does everybody have some notes? Anybody need some? Everybody got them? We're looking at uh, the beginning of the epistle today. Before we do that, we have to take our quiz, though. Uh, so, just be glad it's not in Greek. <laughs> so Troy Fisher always reminds me about how I tricked him one year. When I used to teach in the summer, we had summer classes. I would often teach Romans, the book of Romans, in the summer. And the way I did the testing was, uh, instead of having a test at the end of the class, <clears throat> I would have a test every day. Uh, I got this from a chemistry teacher I had many years ago. It's kind of an interesting way because that way the students are forced to review everything the night that night and they recall it better rather than just waiting to the end of the term and trying to study all that material. So uh, I would give them a quiz, a true and false quiz every day. I'd pass it out in class and uh, it had 10 questions on it. Now in the seminary, uh, some of the classes we taught were what we call English Bible. They were taught from an English text like we're doing. But other classes are taught from the Greek text. So you have to have some years of Greek in order to take the class. And uh, But even in the English classes, I taught English Bible classes, often I would put in parentheses words. I'm telling the story about Troy here. <laughs> I would put these, because uh, I'm trying to justify what I'm doing here. So I would put these uh, I would put these words. Don't believe if if he contradicts what I say. Don't believe what he says. So I would I would put these words these Greek words in parentheses many times or sometimes I might have them if it's a common word. You know Ken will mention will mention the word koinonia today. You'll often hear hear Ken say koinonia fellowship koinonia. And you hear words like euangelion, gospel. There's some common Greek words that you hear sometimes preachers use, you know, all the time. So sometimes on the quiz, I would have these Greek words. And Troy always complained about it because he had to take in Greek. I think that was his, like, first year at take. He was always complaining to me. Always complaining. Just complaining. I was asking questions. Yeah. He was complaining about the... He was complaining about the... Uh, he was complaining about the Greek word. So one day, when I'm giving out the quiz, <clears throat> I had him a special quiz. <laughs> Everybody else has the, has the quiz, and uh, a regular quiz, but his quiz is all in Greek. <laughs> and Matt Owens in the class. Remember, Matt, Matt was in that class. And so, you know... You know, Troy's saying, what is this? What's, what's going on here? And I say, what? What do you mean? What and all the other students are saying, what's wrong with Troy? You know, what's wrong with Troy? You know? So it's not in Greek, you know, so you can't, you can't complain. All right, let's look at this. Timothy helped Paul write the letter to the Philippians. False. We just said sometimes Paul includes uh, people who are with him or people known to the reader's Timothy was there with the establishment of the church. Two, Paul wrote Philippians during his second Roman imprisonment. First. So remember, we think he had two. We only know of one. That's Acts chapter 28. The book of Acts ends there with Paul's two-year house arrest imprisonment. But we said, we think, there's some evidence in the epistles and the pastoral epistles especially, uh, that he may have gotten out in two years. Tradition says he did. He did. He went to Spain, made another journey, and then he was re-imprisoned, and uh, he was executed, his head cut off at Rome. So Philippians was written during the first imprisonment, Acts chapter 28. These are called the prison letters, the prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, and uh, Philemon, and then Philippians is probably the last one written. Uh, Colossians, Romans, Ephesians, and Philippians are called the prison epistles. True or false? False. Romans is not uh, in there. He wrote Romans before he got to Rome in Acts 28. He wrote Romans around Acts chapter 20 when he was in Corinth. Four, Paul founded the church at Philippi on his first missionary journey. 
Paul's second missionary journey. His first missionary journey was mainly in the area of Galatia. And the second missionary journey was where he was uh, in Philippi in Acts 16. Five, Lydia was saved when she heard Paul speaking in the synagogue at Philippi. False. Remember, there was no synagogue because there wasn't ten Jewish families, apparently, so they hadn't formally established one. They met out by the river. And six, Epaphroditus carried Paul's letter back to the Philippians. True. True, true. Probably think he's... Epaphroditus had come from the Philippians with a gift for Paul. Paul sending him back. And he's going to carry the letter. All right. Let's look at the exposition here. First, we'll look at the introduction. This is verses 1 through 11. And I say here, uh, letters written by people in Paul's day generally followed a standard format. They usually began with a three-part greeting. First came the name of the writer. Second, the name of the recipient of the letter. And finally, a word meaning greetings. We see an example of this, for instance, in James chapter 1. James, who is writing to the 12 tribes, greetings. So you can find hundreds and hundreds of examples of this format in letters of Paul's day. I say then the next item in the introduction would usually be a thanksgiving and or prayer to the gods for the health of the well-being of the recipient. Paul also commonly follows this standard form with some Christian modifications particular to him. Now, of course, he's thanking the true God, and not just pagan gods, as you'd see in these letters. Uh, instead of the word greetings, however, Paul uses the expression that we're well known, we're familiar with grace and peace. So he modifies that with that. Also, the introductions to Paul's letter are usually much longer than other letters from his day, because his introductions usually contain items that foreshadow the major concern of the letter itself. So that's what happens in Philippians 2, and that's, that's characteristic of all of Paul's letters. Usually, people wrote letters, you just say hello, and you get right to the point. But Paul says hello, and then he kind of talks a little bit about some issues, and they sort of foreshadow. They, they, this, these are things that he's going to bring up later in the letter in more detail. He does this throughout all his epistles, generally. All right, let's look at the greeting. This is uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. As I say, as I mentioned last week, Paul and Timothy are associated in the greeting, not because they were co-authors of the letter, but because Timothy was a well-known Christian leader, especially at Philippi, and was now with Paul in Rome. As we noted last week, Throughout the epistle, Paul uses the pronoun I rather than we as he continues on, indicating he's the sole author. Paul does not use his title apostle as he does in 10 of his other letters. Remember, he writes 13 letters, and in 10 of those letters, he uses the title apostle. Perhaps because he feels no need to stress his authority, which is not being challenged at Philippi. Now, I was challenged at places like Corinth, and Paul addresses that church always, Paul an apostle. But it wasn't done so at Philippi. Also, Paul is making a personal appeal. He's writing a letter of friendship, thanking them. So Paul had a very warm relationship with the Philippians. As we read the letter, we can see that. And there's really no need for him to remind them of his authority. Like also Philemon. Philemon was written at this time also to a man in Colossae, he has a close relationship with. He doesn't mention he's apostle. And again, contrast that to other letters like Galatians. Uh, Galatians is very, he's very strong. Remember he says there, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. You know, here's very definitive statements, you know. I'm an apostle. I'm sent from God. Listen to what I have to say, not these false teachers they have come into the church. So rather than calling himself an apostle, Paul refers to himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. Now this is the Greek word doulos. You've probably heard, you've heard Pastor Ken mention this word before, the Greek word doulos, 
which normally denotes a slave. Most translations, however, translate it as servant, though uh, some have used uh, slave, like the New Living Version, should be New Living Translation, the Net Bible, or some use bond servant, like the New American Standard, the New King's Version. There's some debate about how we should translate that word in our English versions. This word, doulos, never means servant in the sense of a free individual serving another. Uh, like we you know, think about servants in um, very, very uh, rich people's houses, you know, or people in the 19th century in England who had servants and so forth. They were free and they got paid, but we think of them as servants under the family and so forth, hired servants of wealthy people. Uh, most modern translations uh, shy away from the word slave here because when Americans hear the word slave, their mind immediately goes to uh, slavery in America in the 19th century, the slavery of African Americans in the 19th century. And uh, these slaves, of course, were, were could not gain their freedom. We know how they were often treated and so forth. And that's different from slavery in the Roman world. Slaves in the Roman world, sometimes they were mistreated, but sometimes they were treated very well. Sometimes they were very well educated. They were teachers, and they could often gain their freedom. So slavery was a little different thing. Uh, so I'm just saying modern translators, <laughs> in fact, if you go on the Internet sometime, look up uh, slavery ESV translation the English Standard Version, which is one of the newer translations, translated 2000-2001, there's a video of the translators in England sitting around a table debating this point. How should we translate this doulos? And some want to translate it slave, and some say no, because when people hear slave, they think of African-American slaves in the 19th century, and it doesn't have quite that connotation. And so they, they opted, the ESV opted for servant there because they were just they didn't, they didn't want to give the wrong connotation. But still, uh, you know, for Paul to say he's a doulos was probably a little shocking to the Philippians. Here's Paul, an apostle, and, a, and all that kind of thing. Um, Paul uses it of himself. In chapter 2, verse 7, he uses it of Jesus even. So uh, it shows the humility the submission of the Apostle Paul. Come in, come in. There's some seats here. <laughs> Over here. Yes. So, um, I say here, uh, the recipients of this letter are named, uh, well, I, I, did, I was going to show you that verse where he does say, who being in the very nature of God did not consider himself consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a doulos, a slave in a sense. Uh, as well. So again, Paul is using that word because he wants to show the humility of our Savior and his own humility as he serves Jesus Christ. Um, I say here, the recipients of this letter are named as God's holy people in Christ Jesus, who resided in the Macedonian city of Philippi, suggested that unity for the sake of the gospel is a possible theme for Philippians. One way we can see that is that from Paul's repetition of the word all in this letter, I didn't list all the verses here, but we see it right here when he says all God's holy people. He's always talking about all of you, all of you, all, all, all. He's emphasizing this is a joint thing. We're all in this together. Um... So throughout the letter, Paul will attempt to instill this sense of the need for unity among these believers. I say here, all believers are holy people through their spiritual union with Christ, a fact often expressed by the phrase, in Christ Jesus, or in Christ. Christians are called holy people, are saints, not because they are perfect, but because they have been sanctified. So if we look at you know, what happens when we're saved, we, we trust Christ, we are in the body of Christ, we are, we are said to be in Christ. Remember that expression occurs throughout the epistles, we're in Christ. That speaks of our union with Christ. 
We are with Christ. And out of that union flows two important doctrines, the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. And we have to distinguish between these two doctrines, though they both flow from the uh, union with Christ. Uh, they, they can't be separated, but they have to be distinguished. If you have one, you have the other. You can't have one without the other. So justification, remember, is our declaration of righteousness, is what Ken was, Pastor Ken was referring to this morning when he said, when you trust Christ, the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. We are looked upon as being righteous because Christ lived a righteous life. He died for our sins. And so that righteous is put to our account. The theologians say it's imputed to us. So God sees us as being righteous. That's how we get to heaven. Now, Roman Catholics don't have this doctrine. That's, this is the key doctrine of the, of the Reformation. The Roman Catholics believe that any righteousness <laughs> that you have, that Bill Combs has, is something that Bill Combs must produce. There is no such thing as imputed or imparted righteousness. My righteousness has to be, I have to produce that by my good works, by my obedience, by taking the sacraments, by confession. And that's how I become righteous. Now, unfortunately, no one will ever be righteous enough, so i got to go to purgatory when I die and have my sins. i got to go to many little mini hell and suffer for a while. See, this is, this is blasphemous. Because the Bible teaches justification. We are declared righteous. We have a standing of perfection with God. So we can be called saints because we're justified and we are sanctified. Now, justification is... is, is, is uh, I reversed those two. I'm sorry. <coughs> that slide. <laughs> justification is the non-experiential one. Sorry about that. Justification is non-experiential. By that is, I don't feel it. Nothing happens to me. It's a legal declaration. It's like, you know, you go to a criminal goes to court, and uh, they try his case. The judge says, you're not guilty. He may be guilty or not guilty. He didn't do... (laughs) The the, the law just says, we're just treating you as you're not guilty. Or the law says, we're treating you as guilty. You may not be not guilty. So... I'm sorry I mixed that up, but justification is non-experiential in the sense that it's a legal, technical uh, kind of thing. It's not uh, not experiential. But this sanctification we're talking about is experiential, and there are three aspects to this. A past, a present, and a future sanctification. There is a... uh, This past... Uh, sanctification can be called by different names. I like the name definitive sanctification. And so what happens is the moment we're saved, we are regenerated, God does something to us. This is experiential. What does he do? He breaks the power of sin. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. Now the progressive sanctification is what's going on now. We are being made holy by our obedience, by uh, God's the work of the Holy Spirit and our obedience uh, through the means of grace. We are progressing. We are being made holy. And ultimately, at our glorification, we will be instantaneously holy. Perfect. So this, what's happened right now, what's happened to all Christians the moment they're saved is this instantaneous sanctification. What is that? Romans 6 says, we died to sin. Sin no longer is our master, Paul says. Before we were Christians, we were in bondage to sin. Every All we could do was, everything we did was a bent towards sin. We didn't have any love for God. We may have said we loved God, but it was selfish. We, we died to sin. We, sin shall no longer be your master. Colossians 3 says you died. You've taken off your old self with its practices. So initially, when we're saved, we are declared righteous. God looks at us righteous, but then he goes about the process of making us righteous. God sees us both ways. We are, in God's sight, declared righteous. We'll go to heaven. 
But he, in the meantime, while we're here serving him, working for him, he wants us to be righteous. He wants us to become holy so that we could be more useful for him. He wants us to grow. And so that's what this starts with, this definitive sanctification, where the, the dominion of sin is broken. We're no longer slaves to sin. We can now serve God. And so that's why we can be called holy people. We are God's holy, or, you know, the older translations say saints. We're saints. It's not like the Roman Catholic Church. In the Roman Catholic Church, you have to earn that holiness. You have to be righteous all through this life. And if you're righteous enough, the church will declare you a saint if you've done a miracle or something else, you know. But that's not how the Bible uses the term saint or holy one. It's based on the fact that God has done something in us, and he's continuing to do it in us. So all believers have experienced this initial sanctification at the point of salvation. We've been set apart from the dominion of sin for his service. Therefore, we ought to live holy lives. He also mentions here when Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ, Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. He mentions the overseers and de- or de- uh, overseers and deacons. First, the overseers are bishops. So this is the term for overseer. Another term is bishops. Overseers or bishops were the chief administrative officers in local churches. The term is used interchangeably with elder in the New, Ter- in the New Testament and with the idea of pastoring. So, in the New Testament, uh, the Bible has three terms that it uses for pastors in the local church. They can be called overseers, uh, they can be called bishops, uh, uh, overseers, bishops, that's one term. So the King James says bishops, you know, it uses the term bishop. Uh, if any man desires the office of a bishop, Timothy 3. He desires a good work. Another term for bishop is this overseer. So the New Testament uses the term bishop or overseer. So we could refer to Pastor Ken as overseer Ken. <laughs> now, Kim's not laughing over there. You know, I don't know what's <laughs> Overseer Kim, or we could refer to him as Bishop Kim, you know. But that would really get the big hit, wouldn't it? I mean, <laughs> So we could use that term because that's a perfectly good term. The other term is elder, and the other idea is pastoring. Now, as Baptists, we tend to use the term pastor, but that's really not the most common term. So if we look at this in Scripture, here's Paul, Acts chapter 20. He's at the end of his third missionary journey. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Not include all the text. He goes into a little sermon there. He gives them a little proclamation. Remember in Acts chapter 20? He calls for the elders of the church. At the end he says, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So you, the elders are overseers. The elders are overseers. The elders are bishops. Overseer is bishops. Be shepherds. That, that's actually a verb. Shepherd the church of God. So the pastor, we call the pastor, he's an elder, he's an overseer or bishop, and he's supposed to shepherd. We see the same thing in Titus. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful as wife, a man so forth. Such an overseer. See, they're used interchangeably. Now, they're not... They don't. Uh, they're not. They're not. The, they don't mean the same thing. The term uh, overseer means something like superintendent, someone who oversees, superintends something, some work or project. The elder refers to it refers to the person's uh, maturity, their status, their dignity. Uh, this term elder was probably taken from the synagogue because the leaders in the synagogue were called elders. And so this term was probably brought in the church. So the early church called what we call the pastor. They called them 
elders. They called them overseers or bishops. Um, 1 Peter 5, 2, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, these shepherds of the flock. See, that's what an elder does. He shepherds, he pastors. Watching over, there's that word oversee. Oversee them. So all three terms are used. See, they're used interchangeably. They mean different things. The overseer is, probably the best title is overseer or bishop. Now the reason we don't use the term bishop in most of our evangelical churches is because something happened in the second century in the church. In the second century, the church, the churches, many churches decided that they were going to separate bishops from elders or bishops from pastors and create two separate offices where bishops are above pastors or above elders. So that's what you have in many churches, like the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church. So you have bishops who sort of rule the church, and uh, this is called the Episcopal form of church government. That's because the word bishop or overseer is episkopos. It's the word we get episcopal from. So the bishop, the overseer, he's the episkopos. They rule over the church. So you've got that in the Methodist church. You've got that in the Lutheran church. You've got that in the Roman Catholic church. So the bishops rule the church. And uh, so in those churches, not churches can vary, but you know, in the Roman Catholic church, you don't vote on who's going to be your next pastor or priest in your church. He's the pastor. But the bishops control that. They determine that. So there's this unscriptural division of the offices that happen, unfortunately. And many churches are based on that tradition, that there's a distinction between the bishop. But you can see here there is not. There's only two offices in the local church, and that's the overseers and the deacons. Only two. And the overseer is the same as the as the elder. Oversee and elder are the same, and they're the same as the pastor. So in our Baptist churches, our Bible churches, others, we refrain from saying Bishop Ken because to a lot of people we give the wrong impression that he's a bishop over a number of churches, so we don't tend to use that. I know in the, in the Detroit area even you'll see a lot of African-American churches do that. I've, maybe there's some others who do. They'll, they refer to their pastor as bishop. It's not unscriptural. <laughs> It's okay. It's just a little confusing today because bishop has taken on this higher office and so forth. The term we use is pastor. That's the Ephesians 4:11. That's the only time it's really used. So Christ gave the gave so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. So there's the noun that's used, pastors that we use. We use the noun pastor. But it's perfectly all right to say overseer or elder. Either one is okay. I just put that up there because um, these are two different offices. Pastors and teachers are two different functions that Paul is referring to here. But he puts this together in a kind of a special way in the original language to indicate that these pastors and teachers are related to each other. That teachers is the larger group, and pastors is a subset of that. So this is clear that Paul is saying, God gave to the church pastors and teachers. It's saying, we could translate this, pastors and other teachers. The point being that all pastors must be teachers, but not all teachers have to be pastors. Every pastor must be able to teach. Remember, Timothy says... The overseer, the bishop, must be able to teach. That's a requirement. So there's a distinction here, but Paul is... An English example would be, we do that even in English, the deaf and the handicapped. Well, deaf are handicapped. All deaf people are handicapped, but not all handicapped are deaf. So the handicapped is the larger um, group, and the deaf is the son. So, So we have those three terms... But it's very clear from Philippians here that there are only two offices. The overseer is the same as the elder. 
is the same as the pastor. So those churches that have a distinction, they're really unscriptural in that sense. Deacons, notice, were the secondary officers in the church. These, uh, The office was probably derived from that of the seven men referred to in Acts 6, 1 through 7. Remember that passage in Acts where the church, the apostles need help. They have to have any to distribute food or money to uh, the widows there in Jerusalem, difficult times. And so they choose, the church chooses ultimately seven men to help there. Now they're not actually called deacons in that passage. There are related terms. It says they serve, they, the, the verb form of deacon is used, and another noun form is used. But we know it when we get to Timothy, Paul lists two offices there. Those, the bishop, the overseer, and the deacons are the two officers, and we see it here. Uh, the deacons in Acts were charged with these temporal concerns that I mentioned, such as dispensing this aid to the needy. They assisted the apostles. They're not said to rule or teach. It doesn't mean they can't teach. It just says it's not a requirement for the office. The main difference between the office of pastor and deacon is the deacon is not required to teach. So it can, but it's not required to do that. Uh, though overseers and deacons were the two orders of officers in the local churches, the Philippians, Philippians is the only letter to mention them in its greeting. Why Paul includes them here is nowhere stated and not entirely discernible. So we can try to think about the letter as a whole and say, why would Paul, of all the letters, why does he say, now I'm writing to you, first of all, overseers and deacons. Why does he point them out? It's possible that Paul mentions them uh, in a respectable manner here at the beginning in order to sort of prepare for what's coming, the rebukes that are coming. You know, there's some problems in the church, and when there are problems, the first people that need to deal with it is the leadership of the church, the overseers and deacons. So it's possible that he, he does that. Uh, there's some frictions in the church, it becomes clear in chapter 4 when he actually calls out Judea and Syndicate, you know. And so it's the responsibility of the church leadership to address these problems. It's also possible that since one of the main reasons for the, writing this letter was to thank the church for this generous gift that had been brought by Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome, that he wanted to address the leadership at the beginning and point them out. I mean, I think it's very likely that the leadership would have been involved in gathering this offering, maybe instigating this offering, uh, bringing it to the people's attention, and so forth. So he mentions them. Finally, verse 2, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The traditional greeting in Greco-Roman world was, as we noted earlier, greeting the word kyrene. In Paul's hands, this now becomes the related word grace, charis. It's very similar but a slightly different meaning. Chorus, we're familiar with grace. If you had to sum up one term for Paul's understanding of the gospel, it would be chorus, grace. To which he adds the Jewish greeting, peace, or shalom. So grace sums up Paul's entire theological outlook. The sum total of all God's activity towards his creatures can be thought of as being merciful, being giving us grace in Christ Jesus. Nothing is deserved, nothing is earned, it's grace, my friends. It's all of grace. And then, of course, he says that brings about peace. So grace comes first. As a result of grace, we have peace with God. We're, we're right with God. That brings us to the thanksgiving, verses 3 through 8. As we noted earlier in Paul's letters, the content of the thanksgiving anticipates many, if not most, of the issues to be addressed later in the letter. We have a first kind of an initial statement of the thanksgiving, and then we'll sort of have an expansion of that thanksgiving. I see here Paul begins his letter by thanking God for his readers. He follows this pattern in all his letters except Galatians, where the absence of a thanksgiving is apparently due to the serious matters at hand. As I've said previously, the Philippians had a warm relationship with the Apostle Paul, and this warm relationship is seen right here at the beginning of the letter. 
this Thanksgiving was prompted by good memories of the church at Philippi. Paul thanked Paul thanked uh, the Philippians every time he thought of them. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. So Paul is every time he thought about the Corinthian and about the Philippians, he the thing that came to his mind was thankfulness for these people. I mean, that's what it is sometimes, you know. We, I'm sure you've had that experience where certain Christian people, certain friends, always cause you to have thankfulness in your heart, you know. We wish we could say that about everybody, but certain ones. And Paul, when he thought of the Philippians, he was just overwhelmed with this joy, this thankfulness. He's not speaking about praying without ceasing, but every time he prayed, at the regular times of prayer, he remembered the Philippians and was thankful. Paul had happy members of the Philippians such as he could always pray for them with joy. Verse 4 contains the first of five uses of joy in Philippians. Others are there. In addition, the word rejoice appears seven times, and the compound rejoice with occurs twice. So joy is clearly the prevailing mood or atmosphere. I didn't think... I don't think it's the theme, but it's the atmosphere because of Paul's warm relationship with the Philippians. Verse 5, he says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This is a continuation of, in my prayers, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul now starts the reason for his thanksgiving. What caused Paul the deepest satisfactions was the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. This term partnership is that word koinonia, Pastor Ken often mentions. Here it denotes something like participation, fellowship, sharing. Literally means to share with someone in something. Paul is speaking of the Philippians' cooperation in promoting or the spreading with the spreading of the gospel. So here it means, as it often does, the proclamation of the gospel. Often we think of the gospel, we're just thinking about the message. But here it means your partnership in the gospel means your partnership in the proclamation of the gospel. We see that throughout Philippians here. He says in 2.22, But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father he has served me in the work of the gospel. That is the work of proclaiming the gospel. <laughs> Yes, for three, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, the cause of gospel proclamation, advance of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So uh, this proclamation of the gospel is the singular passion of Paul's life. And the Philippians apparently shared that you know, that uh, passion. And, uh, you know, if we're honest, we'd have to say we always haven't had that passion like we should for the gospel. We, we hear Pastor Ken exhorting us constantly, all the time, that this should be heard of the day, that this should be our focus, our main focus. But life gets messy, things get in the way and everything. We get distracted, you know, and we shouldn't. We should have this kind of attitude that the Philippians had, that they, they, they shared this burden that Paul had for the proclamation, the advancement of the gospel. The cooperation, the partnership, the koinonia of the Philippians is to be understood in its widest sense, though so it certainly included their financial help. Paul uses koinonia to speak of the Macedonian contribution to the Jerusalem saints. So it is financial, certainly, here. The word koinonia is used, translated differently, for Macedonia and Achaia. Remember on Paul's uh, second missionary journey, uh, sometime earlier here before writing of Philippians, obviously, he was taking an offering to take back to Jerusalem. And he says, Macedonia, that is Philippi, Thessalonica, and Achaia, Corinth, were pleased to make a contribution. He's writing to the Romans. For the poor among God's people, that contribution is a koinonia, a sharing. Second Corinthians eight four he tells the 
Corinthians. The Macedonians, that's probably the Philippians, urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. So these Philippians were not just eager, you know, to help Paul in the, his gospel ministry to support him, but he, they begged for the privilege of doing this kind of thing. Um, so from the first uh, from the first day corresponds to in the beginning of the gospel because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day. That's when the gospel first reached them and he departed. The Philippians had cooperated with Paul from the first time he came to Macedonia about 10 years earlier, right up till the present. Paul had received uh, uh, gifts sent him at Thessalonica. Um, Paul says, for even, he says later in the letter, for even when I was in Thessalonica, remember last week we traced that missionary journey, and Paul goes from Philippi, the next city he goes to, is Thessalonica, where he stops at in Acts 17. He says, even when I was in Thessalonica. So Paul establishes the church, young church. He leaves, probably in a few months, weeks. He goes to the next town, and even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent aid to me more, uh, more than once when I was in need. Amazing, isn't it? Just this young church. And they're concerned about the gospel ministry and the Apostle Paul. He says to the Corinthians, and when I was with you and needed something, so Paul goes to Thessalonica, he goes down to Berea, Athens, as Pastor Kim was talking about today in Acts 17. Acts 18, he goes to Corinth. He writes back to the Corinthians, and when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia, that would be Philippi, supplied what I needed. So these are very generous people, very concerned about helping Paul, supporting Paul in the gospel ministry. And, of course, now Paul's writing this letter because Epaphroditus has come all the way from Philippi to Rome to bring a gift, a financial gift for the apostle Paul. When Paul is under house arrest there, the Romans don't provide you anything. <laughs> if you don't have anything, you starve to death. Uh, Roman prison, people didn't live in Roman prisons or in Roman imprisonment for 10 years or anything like that. If somebody didn't provide you with food and help and so forth, you were, you were gone. That's just the way it was. All right, let's look at the <clears throat> expansion of Thanksgiving, verses 6 through 8. Paul says, Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul now gives a further but closer related reason for thanks, his thanksgiving for the Philippian believers, which is his assurance that God's work of salvation in their lives cannot be frustrated. It was God who had produced their transformed lives by the work of regeneration, being saved, born again. So Paul was confident that God would continue his work until Christ's return, until the day of Christ Jesus. The good work refers to the salvation begun at their conversion. So God not only initiates our salvation, He justifies us, He sanctifies us, He continues to sanctify us through this life. He not only initiates it, but He continues it, and He guarantees it will come to completion. God is not going to not going to let anything anything prevent that salvation from coming to completion. God will bring his work of salvation in our lives to its consummation. Nothing in this life, nothing nothing can prevent that from happening. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8 for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You know, Pastor Ken's always repeating this verse to us. Verse 30. And those he predestined, he also called. Called to salvation. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Remember, it's 
It's, it's as though it already happens, writing in the past tense. Even though we're not glorified, uh, it's certain to be happening. And so he writes about it that way. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth, or anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God will bring his work in us to completion. Uh, it'll come ultimately, uh, the completion will ultimately not come until the day of Christ Jesus. I say here, the completion of our salvation takes place on the day of Christ. This phrase occurs with only slight variations six times in the New Testament, three of them in Philippians. The expression is similar to the day of the Lord or day of Jehovah in the Old Testament. However, in contrast to the Old Testament emphasis on judgment, the day of, Jesus, of Christ Jesus is mentioned in all cases with reference to the New Testament church. So we're talking about the time when Christ returns at the rapture and those who are alive will be caught up, those who are dead will be raised. And so it's true that uh, when we, if we die and we go to heaven, we'll be with Christ, our salvation might seem like it's complete, and it'd be pretty complete, <laughs> but not quite, because we still wait for those glorified bodies when Christ comes at the rapture. And so he says that's when it's really complete, the ultimate completion, glorification. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. In verse 6, Paul has made it clear that God is the author of the Philippian salvation, but now he shifts focus in verse 7. He commends them, not God, for their faithfulness in supporting him when whatever the circumstances. Paul's assurance that the Philippians will persevere to the end arises from the external, visible evidences that their lives provided. I mean, neither Paul, even the great apostle, could not know ultimately about a person's spiritual condition. We can't know ultimately about a person's true spiritual condition. We can only really judge Christians by their fruit. And in the case of the Philippians, it was pretty clear. Their lives gave real evidence that they were for the gospel. They were united for the gospel. And that's a wonderful thing. If we can look back at people who have gone on to be the Lord and have confidence that they're there because they had this same attitude that the Apostle Paul had about the gospel and the importance of the gospel in their lives and so forth. So Paul was right in regarding the Philippians highly because they'd become partners with him in his imprisonment and his current legal proceedings. By saying that the Philippians were in his heart, Paul was using a figure of speech that denotes not just emotions or sentiment, but the essence of consciousness and personality. The word heart includes mind, will, refers to a person's innermost being. Paul's point is that since they had such a positive disposition towards him, he had the same disposition towards them. The word chains is often used to denote imprisonment. He says here, whether I'm in my chains or defending or confirming, all of you sharing God's grace with me. So chains is often denotes imprisonment or prison. So it can be just Paul is under house arrest. I think that's what we see in the book of Acts. He's chained to a praetorian guard. He's not free just to run around where he wants to but he's not technically in a prison at this point, a Roman prison, probably. Um, from what, that's what we gather from Acts 28. I say here, although it might have been 
dangerous to identify themselves openly with Paul, the Philippians had treated his difficulties as their own and had come to his assistance with their gifts, both in his imprisonment, his chains, and his legal proceedings, what he calls his defense and confirmation of the gospel. I mean, sometimes it's not... You know, it's not it's not easy to stand with people who are under prosecution or something. And you know, nobody wants to be associated with somebody who is in trouble, maybe. Uh, and but here's Paul, here's the Philippians. Here's Paul. He's in Rome. He's under arrest, but they're willing to stand with him in his defense and confirmation. These are legal terms. The terms defense and confirmation. It suggests that Paul thinks that he is soon to be in court. Remember, he has appealed to Caesar back in the book of Acts uh, when he was there in Caesarea. He was under arrest and he appealed to Caesar. He had been shipped off. Acts 28, he's there under arrest waiting for the emperor and his people to do something with him. And apparently thinks it's coming up because he, the way he talks about it. That's why we think Philippians is written probably toward the end of this. So his court proceeding before the Roman authorities is probably imminent. And Paul is thinking about this. He's going to have to give a defense of the gospel he preached. And he hoped to be able to do that, you know, uh, in a good way and present, you know, his evidence for believing what he believes about the gospel. And so Paul is saying here, all Christians are really on trial with me. Because what happens to Paul can have an effect on all the churches that Paul established. The Philippians saw that. They saw that this is okay. Paul's got himself in trouble. Good riddance. No. This, this, is, very, this, is, this, is, this is the guy who established our church. And this, is, this could have real repercussions for Christians throughout the world. What happens to the Apostle Paul here? And so, in Paul's view, all Christians were sort of on trial, and the outcome would affect them. And the Philippians' assistance was a clear reminder that they shared the same grace of God and salvation as Paul. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul now introduces a mild oath. God can testify in order to emphasize how deep his affections are, his affection is for the Philippians. So he calls God to witness that he longs for the Philippians with nothing less than the love of Christ Jesus. Paul's longing for the Philippians probably include both his desire to see and be with them and his concern that they remain true to the gospel. It's the same concern Christ has for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. Coffin here. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for our time together this day. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and the example we read about him in Scripture. Certainly, his life and commitment to the gospel is a great inspiration for us. Uh, Give us a, a taste of that, a dose of that, a desire to emulate that in our own lives. We pray in Christ's name.